Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Hi, I'm Heather Renee May, and this is Flipping Dreams Podcast. One, two, three, four. Let try to be a sectary. Good could be, and I try to be a dictator. What did I see? Welcome back to Flipping Dreams. So glad you're here. And we are going to continue um, with the story that we started last episode from the memoir of Muriel Wiley Blanchett, The Curve of Time. Um, it's a memoir of her uh, in her travels with her children um, up the Inside Passage um, in the summers in British Columbia in a boat. We're going to pick back up in the middle of this first chapter entitled The Curve of Time. And if you remember last week, there were lots of bears in this chapter, lots of lots of strange dreams and comings and goings of past and, and future. And so um, we'll pick back up, and I hope that you enjoy. Marlboro Heights flanks the northern side of Vancouver Bay, swinging boldly out in a 10-mile curve and making the inlet change its course. It rises straight up out of the sea and straight up to 6,000 feet. And nobody knows how deep it goes. The chart just states in chart language, 100 fathoms, no bottom, right off the cliffs. The children always hang over the gunwale, trying to see. They don't know quite what, but it must be something awful in anything so deep. Peter and John were still moaning about the trout the bear had eaten, so I said I would stop and we would try to see what mysterious thing we could catch. I stopped the engine and Elizabeth held us off the cliff with the pike pole while we knotted all our fishing lines together. We tied on a two-pound jigger, which is a flat, rounded piece of lead with a rigid hook at the lower end. Then we baited it with bacon and down, down, down. And everybody watched and pushed for better places to see. After a while, I thought I could feel something like bottom. It was so far away that I couldn't be sure. But I jigged the line up and down, up and down, then caught, something caught and held it and jigged back. Something like getting in touch with another planet. I pulled in and in and in. The children watched breathlessly, but still there was more to come. It was now definitely something. I told Jan to bring the dinghy in closer and I leapt, leapt the gap still pulling. 
I didn't know what might live in that great depth. I'd bring it alongside the dinghy, have a look at it first, then decide. Foot after foot after foot, then ah, from the children. A bright scarlet fish was goggling at me from beside the dinghy. It was about two feet long and thick through. It didn't struggle. It just lay there gasping. I took the gaff and lifted it gently into the boat by its gills, for water didn't seem to be its proper medium. Again, it didn't struggle. It just lay on the floorboards and gasped and goggled, as though it would have liked to tell me something but couldn't. Put the poor thing back, put it back, pleaded the children, wringing their hands. But just then, a great inflated tongue-like thing came up out of its mouth and stayed out. Then I remembered what the fishermen up at the Yukulta Rapids had told us about red snappers that were sometimes chased up from great depths. Without the pressure of the depths, the sac or bladder inflates and they have to die. They can never go back to where they belong and just flounder about on the surface until eagles or seagulls put them out of their misery. They are very good to eat, but after seeing this one's goggly, goggling eyes and listening to its pleading gasps, I don't, didn't think any of us would want to. I killed it quickly and put it over the side. The wind hit us as we came opposite Britain River, just as it usually does. It blows out of the deep valley of the Britain River and then escapes out through Vancouver Bay. After we had slopped ahead out, out of that, we met the wind that blows out of Deserted Bay and on the full length of Princess Royal Reach. So for the next 10 miles or so, we battled the wind. It is not a nice wind in, the, in among the mountains. It picks you up in its teeth and shakes you. It hits you first on one side and then on the other. There is nowhere to go. You just have to take it. But finally, everybody tired and hungry, we rounded Patrick Point into the Queen, into the gentle Queen's Reach, and there, there was no wind at all. An hour or so later, we were at the entrance to Princess Louisa Inlet, but the tide was still running a turbulent ten knots out of the narrow entrance, so we tied up to the cliff and ate our supper while we waited for slack water. We were inextricably associated with Captain George Vancouver, in our summer-long trips up the coast. He explored, surveyed, and charted the coast of British Columbia in 1792 and named practically every island, inlet, and channel, names that are still used. Every bay we anchor in, every beach we land on, Vancouver or his lieutenants had been there first. Vancouver, of course, had no charts. He was there to make them. But from old sources, he had certain reports of a great inland sea in those latitudes, and he seemed to be convinced that it existed. Even when he conf was confronted with the whole stretch of the snow-capped coast range, he was still sure he was going to find a channel through the mountains to that Mediterranean Sea. In June of that far-off summer in 1792, Vancouver left his ship, the Discovery, and the arm-tendered Chatham at anchor down in Birch Bay, just south of what is now the international boundary. Then, with Archibald Menzies, the botanist of the expedition and perhaps four others in, in the Little Yall, and Mr. Puget in charge of the launch, Vancouver set off to examine the coast to the north. After exploring part of Burrard Inlet, on which the present city of Vancouver is built, they sailed up Howe Sound, just a little north of Burrard Inlet. Captain Vancouver clearly did not like our high mountains. The low, fertile shores they had seen further down the coast near Birch Bay, he says, here no longer existed. Their place was now occupied by the base of a tremendous snowy barrier, thin, wooded, and rising abruptly abruptly from the sea to the clouds, from whose frigid summit the dissolving snow and foaming torrents rushed down the sides and chasms of its rugged surface, exhibiting altogether a sublime but gloomy spectacle which animated nature seemed to have des deserted. 
Not a bird nor a living creature was to be seen, and the roaring of the falling cataracts in every direction precluded their being heard had any been in the neighborhood. Again, at noon, I considered that we had advanced some miles within the western boundaries of the snowy barrier, as some of its rugged mountains were now behind and to the south of us. This filled my mind with the pleasing hopes of finding our way to its eastern side. Then they proceeded up to the head of the inlet, where all our expectations vanished, in finding it to terminate in a round basin encompassed on every side by the dreary country already described. They sailed up the coast for about 60 miles, taking observations and soundings. Eventually, they entered Jervis Inlet, starting off at 4 a.m. as usual. The width of the channel still continuing, again flattered us with discovering a breach in the eastern range of snowy mountains, notwithstanding the disappointment we had met with in Howe Sound, and although since our arrival in the Gulf of Georgia, it had proved an impenetrable barrier to that inland navigation of which we had heard so much and had sought with such sanguine hopes and ardent exertions hitherto, hitherto in vain to discover. Later, by the progress we had this morning made, which comprehended about six leagues, we seemed to have penetrated considerably into this formidable object, and as the more lofty mountains were now behind us, and no very distant ones were seen beyond the valleys caused by the depressed parts of the snowy barrier in the northern quarters, we had great reason to believe we had passed this impediment to our wishes, and I was induced to hope we should find this inlet winding beyond the mountains. After dinner, they proceed. Until about five in the evening, when all our hopes vanished, by finding it terminate, as others had, in swampy lowland. Vancouver's whole outlook on these beautiful inlets was colored by this desire to find a seaway to the other side of the mountains. Some of the party must have been impressed with the beauty and grandeur. Menzies, the botanist, is more enthusiastic. In his diary, he notes, immense cascades dashing down chasms against projecting rocks and cliffs with a furious wildness that beggars all description. Even he doesn't say that the cascades start away up at four or 5,000 feet that mountains six and 7,000 feet high flank either side of the inlet beyond Marlboro Heights and show great snowfields in the upper valleys. Coming back from the head of the inlet that evening, Vancouver and his party, who had noticed the entrance to Princess Louisa on the way up and decided it was a creek, found the tide running swiftly out of it. The water was salt and the entrance shallow. They gave up the idea of spending the night there and rode until 11 o'clock past high cliffs to find shelter behind Patrick Point. The youngsters were delighted that Vancouver had missed Princess Louisa Inlet, very scornful that he had thought the entrance shallow. He didn't even try the right entrance. He was on the ledge, said Peter. Well, he couldn't have got in anyway with the tide running out, said Jan, defending him. He certainly couldn't have got in. Even we, who knew the way, were tied up to a log, eating our supper while the pent-up waters of Louisa poured themselves out through the narrow entrance in a ten-knot race. It was also understandable that they should have mistaken it for a creek. From the outside where we waited, you can see nothing of the inlet beyond. Two steep 4,000-foot mountains, one on each side of the entrance, completely obscure the inlet and the mountains beyond. The entrance is a little tricky to get through at low tide unless you know it, but there's plenty of water. From water level, the points on one side and the coves on the other fold into each other, hiding the narrow passage. It is not until you are rushed through the gap on a rising tide that the full surprise of the existence and beauty of this little hidden inlet suddenly bursts on you. It is always an effort to control the boat as you hold her on the high ridge of the straight run of water down the middle. 
Then, as you race past the last points, the ridge shatters into a turmoil of a dozen different currents and confusions. Your boat dashes towards the rocky cliff beyond, the shallow cove on your right, and the cliff, equally delighted, or so it seems, rushes towards your boat. You wrestle with the wheel of your straining boat and finally manage to drag the two apart and you are out of danger in a backwater. The inlet is about five miles long, a third of a mile wide, and the mountains that flank it on either side are over a mile high. From inside the entrance, you can see right down to the far end where it takes the short L-turn to the left. At that distance, you can see over the crest to where all the upper snow fields lie exposed, with their black peaks breaking through the snow. The scar of a landslide that runs diagonally for 4,000 feet is plainly visible. At certain times of the day, the whole inlet seems choked with mountains, and there's no apparent line between where the cliffs enter the sea and where the reflections begin. Three miles farther down the inlet, the high snowfields become obscured. The mountains are closing in. You turn the corner of the great precipice that slightly overhangs, which they say the Indians used to scale with rocks tied to their backs. The one who reached the top first was the bravest of the brave and was made the chief. Then suddenly, dramatically, in a couple of boat lengths, the whole abrupt end of the inlet comes into sight, heavily wooded, green, but rising steeply. Your eye is caught first by a long white scar up about 2,000 feet that slashes across and disappears into the dark green background. Again, another splash of white, but farther down. Now you can see that it has movement. It is moving down and down in steep rapids, disappearing, reappearing, and then in one magnificent leap, plunging off the cliff and into the, the sea a hundred feet below. As your boat draws in closer, the roar and the mist come out to meet you. We always tied up at Trapper's Rock, well over to the left of the falls, but not too close to the mile-high, perfectly vertical cliff. It is a huge piece, about 12 by 12, with a slight incline. Did this fall off that cliff too? Somebody asked as they took the bow line and jumped off the boat onto Trapper's Rock. I was busy trying to drape a stern anchor over a great sloping rock that lay just underwater, ten feet astern, and avoided answering. Dark night was coming in, was coming on rapidly, and the cliffs were closing in. Night was a foolish time to answer unanswerable questions. I was glad we couldn't hear the waterfall too loudly at Trapper's Rock. That waterfall can laugh and talk, sing and lull you to sleep, but it can also moan and sob, fill you with awful apprehensions of you don't know what all depending on your mood. My crew soon settled down to sleep. On the other side of the falls, I could see a light through the trees. The man from California, who had started building a large log cabin last year, must be there in residence. I didn't want to think about him, for he would spoil much of our freedom in Louisa. Then I started feeling the pressure of the mile-high cliff, worrying about the two huge rocks we were moored between and all the other monstrous rocks that filled the narrow strip behind us. As you stepped off Trapper's Rock onto the shore, you stepped into a sort of cave formed by an enormous slanting rock that spread out over your head. A little stream of ice-cold spring water ran on one side and dropped pool by pool among the maidenhair ferns down to the stony shore. A circle of blackened stones marked our cooking fires of other summers. The black and top of this prehistoric cave were covered with moss and ferns and small huckleberry bushes. All the slope behind was filled with enormous rocks. They were not boulders, worn and rounded by the old glacier. They had sharp angles and straight-cut facets, in size anywhere from 10 by 10 to 20 by 20, hard, smooth granite, sometimes piled two or three deep, towering above us. 
They were undoubtedly pieces that had fallen off the cliff, the cliff that shut off the world and pressed against me. The first night's question always was, was Trapper's Rock one of the first to break and fall, or was it one of the last which fell and bounced over the others to where it now lay? In back of the rock and masses are piled one on top of the other. There are deep crevices between them that you could fall into. No one knows how many feet. It would take rope work to get on top of some of them. None of us is allowed to go in there alone. The stars had filled up the long crack of sky above me, brighter stars than you see anywhere else. Bright, so bright. Somewhere in that uneasy night, I dreamt that I was watching a small black animal on a snowfield some distance away. I don't remember why I was so curious about it, but in my dreams it seemed most important for me to know what it was. Then I decided, and knew most certainly, that it was a black fox playing and sliding on the edge of the snowfield. Then moving closer to it, as you sometimes do in a dream's mysterious way, I saw that it wasn't a fox at all, but a small black pony. I remember that it looked more like a pony that a child had drawn, low slung with a blocky head, sliding on a most unlikely snowfield. In the wonderful bright morning, the cliffs were all sitting down again, well back. All the fears and tensions had gone. We had a swim in the lovely warm water. The sun wouldn't come over the mount mountain edge before 10, but a pot of hot porridge, toast, and coffee kept everyone warm. I made the children laugh about my dream of a black fox that turned into an ugly black pony. Everyone decided that it must have been the man in black down in Vancouver Bay that turned into a bear. I couldn't think why it hadn't occurred to me before. It's just as well to have dreams like that in the past. Over on the other side of the falls, we could see a big float held out from the shore by two long poles, new since last year. Somewhere in, in, somewhere in behind lay the log cabin and the intruder. His coming last year had changed many things. We used to be able to stay in the inlet a couple of weeks without seeing another boat. Last summer, when the cabin was being built by skilled axemen, there were always a few boats there coming and going with supplies, and the men who were building the cabin were, all, were there all the time. We had only just met the man from California, and we'd stayed for only two days. On the other side of the inlet, on the right-hand cliff beyond the falls, which is not as perpendicular and is sparsely wooded with small pines, there is a great long scar. You can see it where it started as a rock slide 4,000 feet up. It had carried trees, scrub, and loose stones in front of it, gradually getting wider as it scraped the rock, scraped the rock clean. In rainy weather, a torrent races down, tumbling noisily from pool to pool. But in summertime, only a thin stream slides over the smooth granite, collecting in an endless series of deep and shallow pools. Heated by the sun on the rock, the water is lukewarm. We used to climb up perhaps half a mile and then slide down the slippery granite from pool to pool like so many otters. We found it too hard on the seats of our bathing suits and had gotten into the habit of parking them at the bottom. Now, with the coming of the log cabin, we had to post a guard or else tie our bathing suits around our necks. Boats scrubbed and tidied, sleeping bags out in the sun. Everybody had their jobs. Then we collected our clothes for washing, piled into the dinghy, and rowed across to the landslide. There was a green canoe turned over on the wharf. No sign of the owner. He probably didn't even know that anyone was in the inlet, for you couldn't hear a boat's engine on account of the falls. The three lowest pools of the landslide were called Big Wash, Big Rinse, and Little Rinse. All snow water, all lukewarm, so washing was easy. And we carry only one set of clothes, pajamas, and bathing suits, so there's practically nothing to wash anyway. We scrubbed our clothes, we washed our hair, we washed ourselves. That, interspersed with sliding, took some time. 
Then all clean and shining bright, we gathered up our things. The three girls said that they would swim on ahead. Peter wanted to go too, but he swims with only his nose above water, and it's hard to see if he's there or not. So I said that he could help John and me gather huckleberries first. When we followed later in the dinghy, Peter, with his snorkel up, swimming beside us, and there were the three girls sitting on the wharf talking to the man from California. He said he hadn't had anyone to talk to for a month except old Casper down at the entrance, and he always brought back a flea when he went to visit him. He asked us to come over and have supper with him that night and see the new log cabin. The children held their breath, waiting for me to say yes. After lunch, needing to stretch our legs, we started off to scramble up through the mighty chaos that lay behind Trapper's Rock. Peter carried a coil of light rope for rescue work, and John his bow and arrow ready, for you could never tell what. We had to be pulled and pushed up some of the biggest barriers. Devil's Club made impenetrable rock blocks around which we had to detour. Then suddenly we found ourselves on a well-defined trail that skirted all the biggest rocks and seemed to find the best way. Who do you suppose this nice person was, asked John. Trapper, I should think, I said, very grateful for it. Then it ended in a big hole between two great rocks that overhung our way. The youngsters were intrigued with the thought of a real cave and wanted to explore it, but there's a very strong smell coming from in it. Just like foxes, someone said. No, like mink, some said somebody else. Certainly, it was something, and we decided to skip it. We had to go partly through the entrance to get past. For some reason, I could feel the hair standing up along my spine. The trail led beyond as well. The huckleberries were ripe and the cave forgotten. Then we could hear the roar of the river ahead, so we left the trail and cut down towards the sea. We soon wished we hadn't, for the going was heavy, and we were very vulnerable in our bathing suits. Finally, we broke through to the shore, close to the falls, and there being no other way, we had to swim and wade back to our rock. I waded, with John sitting on my sh shoulders, up to my neck at times. The sun was off the rock, but the cliffs hold the heat so long that we didn't miss it. Later, each of us dressed up in his one set of clothes. We rode leisurely across to the float, probably as glad to have someone to talk to as the man from California. The cabin was lovely. The whole thing inside and out was made of peeled cedar logs, 15 and 20 inches in diameter. There was one big room about 40 by 20 feet with a big with a great granite fireplace. A stairway led up to the balcony off which there were two bedrooms and a bathroom. A kitchen and another bedroom and bathroom led off of the living room. Doors, bookcases, everything made of the peeled cedar logs. Even the Chesterfield in front of the fireplace and the big trestle table. A bookcase full of books. A lot of thought and good taste and superb axemanship had gone into the construction. After supper, sitting in front of the blazing log fire, the children were telling him of our climb back into the beyond. And there was a cave and it smelled like foxes, Peter burst out. Dead foxes, added John. I asked if there were any foxes around here. What on earth made you think of foxes, the man asked. There are no foxes in country like this. Then he asked questions as to just how far back we had been and just where. Then he told us a she-bear and her cub had been around all spring. One of the loggers who were building the cabin had followed her trail and it crossed the river on a log some distance above the falls. He had found the den in the cave Although he had a gun with him, he had not shot the mother on account of the cub. Then, of course, the children had to tell about my dream of the fox that turned out to be a black pony, shaped much more like a bear than a pony, I now realized. It all more or less fitted in. But what about the man down at Vancouver Bay who had turned out to be a bear? Miterlink was beginning to spoil our summer. If the dreams were going to work both ways, we would soon be afraid to get off the boat. The man from California, who hardly knew us, was full of, of the perils of the surrounding terrain. 
We were perfectly willing to say we wouldn't go near the bear's den again. We knew as well as he did that bears with cubs are dangerous. But we forbore to tell him that we were going to climb up 4,000 feet the next day to get some black huckleberries we knew of at the edge of the tree line. After all, he was the intruder, probably attracted the bears. Black bears like hanging around the edge of civilization, and this man and his log cabin made the first thin wedge of civilization that had been driven into our favorite inlet. Judging by the enormous stumps, at one time there had been a stand of huge cedars in the narrow steep valley. Just behind the new log cabin, there was an old skid road. Small logs laid crossways to make a road to skid the big logs down to the sea, with a donkey engine and cables. The skid road goes up to about 600 feet, back the way the old glacier had retreated. Cedar grows quickly, and in this moist valley, with heat and rotting ferns, the growth would be rapid. 600 feet high doesn't mean that you get there by walking 600 feet. It must have been two miles back to the little trapper's cabin at the end of the skid road. The road slanted at quite an incline, and every muscle screamed with the punishment before we got there. We had to stop to get our breath every 100 feet or so, all except John and Peter, who ran around in circles. At the cabin, we dropped exhausted, then drank and bathed our faces in the ice-cold stream. The skid road ends there, and we had to follow a trap line marked by axe blazes on the trees. The trap lines are only used when the snow is on the ground, so there is no path to follow, just the blazed or white scars on the trees. We rested often as the going was really hard, soft earth, moss, and rolling stones. We had to walk sideways to get any kind of foothold. Then we came to the cliff. The boys thought it was the end of everything, but the blazes led off to the right to the bottom of a chimney with small junipers for handholds. John went up directly in front of me. If he were going to slip, I would rather be at the beginning of it before he gathered momentum. It had its disadvantages, though, for he filled me up with earth and stones stones would trickle down inside my shirt and out my shorts. At last, on the edge of a flat near the end of the tree line, we reached the huckleberry bushes. Wonderful bushes, waist high and loaded with berries twice the size of black currants. Growing where they did in the sun with the cliffs behind to hold the heat and all the streams to water them, they're sweet and juicy. In no time, we had our pails full. You just milked them off the bushes. And then we just sat and ate and ate and ate, and our tongues got bluer and bluer. It was Peter who started sniffing, swinging his head in a semicircle to pick up the direction. I smell foxes. No, I mean bears, he said. I had smelt them some time ago. Bears like huckleberries too. But I hadn't climbed 4,000 feet to be frightened by a bear. Also, I was getting tired of, tired of Miterlink conjuring up bears against in our life. By now, everybody was sniffing. Bang your lids against your tins, I suggested. That will frighten them away. So we all banged and banged. Then, as our tins and ourselves were full... I eased everyone on down the trail just in case. As was perfectly natural, everybody had dream, dreamt of bears the night before. Well, Miterlink may have had some kind of plausible time theory, but the children are not sure how he manages about the bears. If they are going to climb onto both ends of the curve, it will be a little too much. Going down a mountain is easier on the wind, but much harder on the legs. The back muscles of your calves, which get stretched going up, seem to tie themselves in knots going down, trying to take up the slack. We tried to sneak past the cabin to our dinghy at the float, but the man from California was lying down there in the sun. Where have you been all day, he asked. I've been worried about you. We smelt bears, offered John, and we banged our tins at them, and they were all as afraid as anything. The man groaned, his paradise spoiled, I suppose. But what about ours? I hastily showed him the huckleberries and asked him to come over and eat huckleberry pie with us on Trapper's Rock two hours after the sun went over the top. Then we rode home and fell into the sea to soak our aches and pains and mud away, around the rock, out of sight. 
We couldn't wear our bathing suits for now our only clothes were dirty again, and we had to keep our bathing suits for supper. We made a big fire on top of the rock to sit by and cooked our supper on the little campfire in the prehistoric cave. A big corned beef hash with tomatoes and onions, our biggest pot full of huckleberry dumplings and coffee. I had warned the children not to mention bears again, so beyond a few groans when he heard where we got the berries, we had a pleasant evening. Clothes had to be washed again. The mountain climb had certainly ravaged them, so we spent the morning away up the landslide while our clothes dried. The man had paddled off in his canoe early to get mail and provisions that some boat was to leave for him at Casper's, so we had the inlet to ourselves. I had snubbed everybody at breakfast time who tried to report a bear dream and felt that I had things back on a sane basis again. I had dreamt of climbing all night. My legs were probably aching. It wouldn't do for me to write mine down when I had been snubbing the children for even talking about theirs. By breakfast time, the only thing I could remember about it at all was hanging onto a bush for dear life while something, water I think, flowed or slid past. It had been terrifying, I know. Later in the day, we climbed up beside the falls. The stream above was very turbulent. You would certainly be battered to death on the big boulders if you fell in. And if you escaped that, there were the falls below to finish you off. Quite a long way farther back, there was a large tree across the stream which made a bridge to the other side. We crawled across on our hands and knees, no fooling allowed. I brought up the rear, holding John's belt in my teeth. The others were across and had gone on ahead before John and I got safely over. I swear that either the tree or the shore shook with the force of that raging water. The others were out of sight, and I called to them to wait. When we caught up, we started to follow them over a steep slope of heavy moss. They were romping across, clutching onto the moss and completely ignoring the torrent 60 feet below on the bottom of the slope. Suddenly, I was sure I felt the sheet of moss under my feet slip as moss will on granite. I shouted to the children not to move and worked my way up a crack of bare granite, pushing John ahead of me, then anchored myself to a bush. I made the children crawl up one by one to where they were, there were some bushes to hang on to. From there, they worked up to a tree. Elizabeth had to come to our help. Holding onto a firm bush, she lowered herself down until John could catch hold of her feet and pull himself up and past her. Then holding onto Elizabeth's feet, I put one foot on the moss and sprang forward, clutching a bush and then somebody's hand. The youngsters were all safely anchored to a tree and I to a bush, and we sat there watching in horror as the big sheet of moss to which I had just given the final push gathered momentum and slid down and over the edge. I want to go home, wailed John. So do I, echoed Peter in his superior years forgotten. Don't be sillies, I said sharply, recovering my breath. How? They all moaned. How what? I snapped. Get home, they meekly sniffed. Well, I wasn't quite sure at that stage. Besides, I was shaken. As soon as the moss slid, I had recognized the bush I was hanging onto. It was the bush in my dream. Straight up seemed to be the only way we could go. Tree by tree, all linked together, we finally got onto quite a wide ledge, and there on the ledge was a distinct trail. Why, it's that old she-bear's track again, cried somebody. And that must have been her bridge, said somebody else. Well, she certainly knows how to choose a good, safe path, I said, wishing I knew which way she and her cub might come strolling. I certainly didn't want to go over the trembling bridge again. So we followed the trail the other way, going by the logger's tail. It should lead us to the old skid road and then down to the cabin. Isn't she a nice old bear to make this nice path, said John, hopefully, tightly clutching my hand. Silly, said Peter, clutching onto my belt behind. Let's sing, I suggested. So, all singing loudly, we followed the nice bear's trail, a nice bear whom I fervently hoped didn't care for singing. All right, that's 
we're going to wrap it up for today. Uh, this episode on Flipping Dreams, we are listening to The Curve of Time by Muriel Wiley Blanchett um, and her adventures with her children in uh, British Columbia up the Inside Passage. And so uh, next week, I will pick back up to the next chapter of this memoir. Um, hopefully, you're enjoying this. Please share if you if you do like it share with others and uh, you can find also previous episodes uh, in my back in uh, my catalog my back backlog of episodes from season one and two and the beginning of the season three where I have interviews with different people that are doing amazing things and flipping their dreams so I hope you enjoy and thanks again for listening to flipping dreams You can find Flipping Dreams podcast anywhere you love to listen to podcasts, or you can find us on RogueMediaNetwork.com. You can also find me on my social media, Facebook at Heather Renee May, on Instagram at underscore every day is May, or on my website at Heather Renee May. Dot com. That's Heather R E N E M A Y dot com. This has been a Rogue Media Network production.